Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Salty Saints Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Randy. And today we are going to be diving into some supposed biblical contradictions. Yeah, people tend to say, people who detract from the Bible tend to say, ah, they're everywhere. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that. Yes. But first, we're going to go to a quick word from our sponsors. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Okay, Randy, are you so stoked to talk about things? This that is are something that I've actually looked at uh, a lot because, uh, not just because I've heard other people say there are contradictions in the Bible, but there have been times when I've looked at stuff and I've said, eh, it says something different somewhere else and look it up, and sure enough, mm-hmm. and just my way of thinking, I've got to understand why. So, yeah. I spent years and years looking at possible contradictions and finding uh, answers. Right. If you're anything like me, the first time I found one, it was like the whole world came crashing down on top of my head. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what is this? How could this be? And then I did exactly what you just said you did. You go in and you start trying to find out why. And you find out there's generally a pretty sensible answer. Frequently. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, listen. Almost we're gonna We're going to talk about this, too. There's a few of them that do throw us for a loop. Yeah. Um, but by and large, they don't. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah. we'll talk about that a bit. But uh, I, I don't know. Like, maybe the best way to start is to start addressing some of these claims people have made yeah, that are sure, con- sure. supposed contradictions. Um, I, I was watching a, a video that what kind of spawned this, uh, a guy said he was doing a video on like 30, 30 clear biblical contradictions. Right. Um, I personally didn't think that a lot of his, he even put were worth engaging with because yeah. they were almost too easy to, interact with um and so i found another guy called holy kool-aid and apparently he's got <laughs> quite the following 
uh, him and the cosmic skeptic, uh, who are like two big, like atheist agnostic YouTubers right now. You'll see guys like inspiring philosophy interacting with these guys a lot. Uh, We've talked about some inspiring philosophy stuff. He's he does little Instagram shorts and stuff. They're kind of funny. Okay. Uh, but I watched uh, one of his videos. Sent it over to Randy. We kind of picked a few each that we just yeah. kind of wanted to talk about and interact with. I think they're kind of representative. Yeah, and that's why I liked his video. Um, he did his research well. I mean, I I think yeah. he was academically honest i just think he's wrong and that's okay we can talk about that you know what i mean um so maybe from the top i think the first one i remember him bringing up was talking about the preparation of jesus's body okay after uh his death on the cross right and so basically the argument that gets brought up is so nicodemus uh Takes the body of Jesus. He gives 75 pounds of spices right, right. for them to uh, wrap the body. And he and – is it um, – Joseph of Joseph Arimathea. Of, yeah, yeah. They, they wrap his body right. with spice. And this is in the book of John. Yes. Uh, actually, I've got it right here. John 1939. There you go. Uh, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And it goes on to say how they prepared the body, they wrap it. And where this kind of starts to develop as what some would call a contradiction is the, uh, it would be the two days later, right? Because the next day is the Sabbath. Next day is uh, Saturday, the Sabbath. Right. Next morning. But then the day after, uh, when the Sabbath was passed, the three women come to prepare the body. And this is in Mark 16.1. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Um, I'd actually like to read a little more of that. Mark 16. Um because it goes into a little bit more detail there. When the Sabbath was, uh, was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who whirled the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Um, yeah, okay, so when they get there, the tomb is already rolled away, right? Right. And so this right. is where they discover – Sorry, right. the stone is rolled away from the tomb. So this is where they realize, you know, you know, they think somebody might have stolen the body or whatever, but then uh, then the angel appears. Um, where this gets kind of thrown out as a d- discrepancy is questioning if Nicodemus had already prepared the body – why are the women going to prepare the body? And can I just throw out what I think is a really stupid, quick way to kind of like blow this whole thing apart? The women are going expecting the tomb to be closed. So they know he's already been prepared. They're going to add to what's already been done. Yeah. They're going to honor his body. By uh, by making sure it doesn't stink in the decomposition process, which is why they applied these perfumes and spices. Wasn't it one of them that just like a week before anointed his feet 
with perfume and mm-hmm. and uh, dried his feet with her hair. Yep. So I guess my, my argument here is if this were actually a contradiction, if this was actually a discrepancy, they wouldn't be going expecting the tomb to be open. Yet they're surprised when it is open. When they looked up, they saw that the tomb, which was very large, had or the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Right. Why would they be shocked at that if they were going, if they thought they were the first ones to go and dress his body? Do you see what I'm saying yeah. here? Like, they're aware that there's already been work done. Right. They're just adding to they're it. They're going to add to they it. They are paying their respects as well, right. is really right. what's happening here. It's not for Jesus. It's not for the body. It's It's for them. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, why do we have funerals? To sure, pay our last sure. respect. It's for the people who are left behind, not for the one who's died. Right. So I, I just find it odd to really pick at this as a, as a contradiction when there's right. just too many moving parts to clearly say, like, like well, everybody's aware of what's going on in the right, story. Right, right. It, if it were truly a contradiction, they wouldn't have expected the stone to be in place when they got there. Correct. Yeah. A lot of the contradictions that are mentioned uh, typically will come up uh, between the Gospels uh, because you have different presentations of the same story and any difference between those is signaled as a contradiction. It also happens between uh, the books of Samuel and Kings and the book of Chronicles because they treat the same time period, the same issues, the same happenings, but they look at it in different ways. One of those is uh, the census that David takes near the end of his life, a census of Israel. Uh, Samuel 24.1 says, now the anger of the Lord burned against Israel again, and he incited, he, the Lord, incited David against Israel to say, go count Israel and Judah. But in First Chronicles 21, 1, it says, then Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count Israel. So who was it? Was it God or was it Satan? Big difference there. Yeah. So it's interesting you bring this one up. Um, we're going to have another one very much like this one come okay. up in a bit. Uh, but what we really need to focus on here, let me see here, uh, is that in this culture, it's not uncommon that if I am the one telling you to do something or allowing you to do something, and then you go and do it for me, it's still me doing it. It's still me allowing it. I am right. still responsible for it at the end of the day, right? And so what maybe the best way to kind of point out what I'm saying here is to look at a passage that has nothing to do with either of the ones you just mentioned. Okay. Can we look at King uh 1 Kings 22 22? Sure. Or sorry, let's start at 1 Kings 22:19. Um Micaiah continued, "Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? 
One suggested this, and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. He said, You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster on you. Well, wait. The Lord wasn't a lying spirit, but there was a lying spirit in his mouth. Yeah. And God allowed it. Yeah. And so it was God's doing. So if God allowed it, God did it. In the Hebrew mind. In the Hebrew mind, yeah. right? Like at least he he was he okayed it. He he was still yeah. the one in charge at the end of the day. And I guess that's the big deal here. So the deal with the census then is God allows it to take place. He's not necessarily the tempter that goes to David, but first Samuel says uh, or second Samuel uh, looks at that and says, well, God's the ultimate authority, so the Lord inside right. David. Right. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Chronicles is a little bit more descriptive and says there was a tempter that went and convinced David to more take specifically a, a the Satan. Yeah. It's an it is calls the title, him the Satan. Which gets right. a little hairy because then we have to remember that Satan is not a personal name. So it's a title. It's a it's a yeah. title, which means there could be many Satans. There could be many accusers, adversaries. Right. Like any unclean spirit or even clean spirit acting as an accuser against somebody. It's it's really it's a legal term for like a prosecutor is, yeah. is the yeah. language yeah. being yeah. used here. So like when we read the book of Job, it's, we see I was Satan. just gonna say same thing happens in the first two chapters of Job. Right. And and we try to say like, oh, that's the devil. And it's like, well, maybe it is, but maybe it's not, too. But later, it's Job's wife, or, or Job responding to his wife says, will I accept good from the hand of the Lord and not the bad? So even Job says this ultimately comes from God. Right, even though it is the Satan in that story that is carrying out this judgment on yeah. Job. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's like five or six of them there. Right. Yeah. 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 I guess we, well, we didn't really think about those others, you know, possibly being contradictions, but people probably would call those contradictions. Probably. Or some probably. would, you know I'm what I mean? Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, really what this boils down to is like, was it God or was it Satan? And the answer is yes, 
<laughs> yeah. It it's both. It's God Satan, allowed it. Satan was the instrument, but God right. ultimately allowed it. Right. So Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a matter of perspective. Right. Yeah. Right. Second issue. Peter denied Christ. To whom did he deny Christ? Now this was one of the big ones that he spent a lot of time going over this, and I never actually looked at that before. Uh, so I kind of looked it up and dug a little bit deeper on that. So in the book of Matthew, there are three denials. All four Gospels have three denials. Peter denies Christ three times. In all four Gospels, it's different people that he denies Christ to. Interesting. So in Matthew, he denies Christ to a servant girl. She is literally called a slave. Then, a cu- this is uh, Matthew twenty six sixty nine. Two verses later, he denies Christ to another girl. And then two verses after that, he denies Christ to some people who were standing there. In the book of Mark, he denies Christ 1466 to a servant girl, three verses later, to the same servant girl. And then, one verse later, to some people standing there. The book of Luke, he denies Christ to a servant girl. That's 2256. Two verses later, he denies Christ to a man, an anonymous man. And one verse later, to a different anonymous man. In the book of John, 1817, he denies Christ to a girl who was at the door. About seven verses later, 1825, to an anonymous person. And then in 1826, to the high priest servant. Now, if you say, well, the man can be the anonymous person, the servant girl could be attending the door, uh, what you come up is with is the possibility of six different denials. So I got online and I looked for this. Is this an issue? Is this a big issue? Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times before the cock crowed. But in the book of Mark, he says, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows twice. So there are some people that say there were six denials. Peter denied Christ three times, and the rooster crowed once. Then he denied Christ three more times, and the rooster crowed again. Interesting. Uh, Another possibility is you have different observers who observe different things. They each saw three denials, but Peter did deny Christ a total of six times. Got you. The whole, what what it boils down to is the essence of what's going on, that Peter will deny Christ before sunup, when the, when the rooster crows. That's there. That's there in all four of the Gospels. Was it 
three times? Was it six times? I don't know, and I don't think it's all that important. Is there is there sorry if I'm like taken away from where you're going with this, but is there a possibility of three being the representation of completeness, like a fulfilled denial? Seven is usually the number of of completeness. Three is a number that typically signifies uh uh God, Trinity and and other mentions of uh three holy 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 is the lord three holies um what peter was doing maybe is denying god and so it's three denials i see i could have sworn that three was also a complete number when we like when we broke down our can you think of any other other examples well of that? like that's why the trinity is three okay because he is Fulfilled, yeah. he is perfect in that. Could be, could uh, be, because that's also that the number is more symbolic than tabulary, what, right? Which is w- kind of why I attribute Jesus asking him if he would feed, do. Do you love me three times? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Oh yeah, like yeah. he he goes through that because yeah, then per, because then he shows a complete forgiveness. Yeah. Um, so like a, a complete ad- abandonment of Christ juxtaposed against the complete forgiveness after the resurrection. Um, whereas Judas does not ask right, for that. Right, right. Um, so I see, I kind of see that going there as well. Yeah. So if it's six or it's 10 or it's 12 or it's 20. And it may have been more. It, the point is you are going to outright deny me. Yeah. A- and whether that three is literal or a like a literary uh, component to show complete right. denial. Right, right. I, I'm actually going to Google that, but yeah. Okay. Do your thing, though. Want another one? Yep. How many donkeys did Jesus ride on when he <laughs> entered Jerusalem? Well, first of all, I don't know what a donkey is, Randy. I, I Now, donkeys, however, I am <laughs> very familiar. All right. So, donkey. Um <laughs> Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, you found something. I did. I found it. You I don't did. mean to cut you off. Yep, the did. number three, uh, this is South Coast today. I don't know what that means. Uh, okay. So the BibleStudy.org says the same thing. So uh, the number, number three biblically represents divine wholeness, completeness, or perfection. Okay. And so, so you're going to deny me completely. I, and that's kind of how I've read that yeah, a lot of okay. the time. So yeah. I, whether it's literal I mean, that, or that not. That seems legit. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Sorry. Okay. My bad. So how many donkeys did Jesus <laughs> ride? Uh, Mark, Luke, John each say one. He told the disciples, go and you'll find a donkey. And uh, this might. Northwest Ohio accent coming through, Zach. I'm so sorry. I forgive you. It's okay. <laughs> but the book of Matthew, Matthew 21, 7 says, go and find a donkey and a colt and bring them to me. Then Matthew 21, 7, New King James Version says, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them. And he sat on them. So the implication there is that Jesus somehow rides the two. And the guy, the the 
the okay, clip that, that you that sent was kind me. of that funny. Was, it, it, it was kind of it's Jesus like standing on two. One of them was was Jesus kind of sitting down, straddling the two. One of them. The colt was on top of the donkey, and then Jesus was on top of the colt. And on the last one, it's Jesus. It's like one foot on each. Like a circus performer, right. one foot on each, riding along. And, yeah. uh, oh, so bad, so bad. But that's an easy one to look at. What? Because – Before we even answer it, can we just say how stupid of a – like, like <laughs> that is – if that is a contradiction – it is beyond contradiction because, like, the people writing this must have just been insane to think that that's humanly possible or makes any right. kind of sense. So please continue. Yeah. So the issue is the last phrase of that verse says that he sat on them. The question is them is a pronoun. It refers back to a different noun that occurred before. There are two possibilities. One them could be the donkey and the colt. The other them could be the clothes that was put on the donkey for Jesus to ride. And in fact, New American Standard says they brought the donkey and the colt and they laid their cloaks on them and he sat on the cloaks. Right. <laughs> Which is the only logical conclusion Absolutely when reading that is. passage. Yeah. Right. So that one just feels like lazy to me. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of grasping at straws. But, Zach, I told you I was going to throw something at you. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. So, uh, Matthew, four times in his gospel, takes something that the other gospel says there's one, and Matthew says, no, there were two. The Gadarene demoniac. Do you remember that story? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he crosses the sea and this, uh, he's now in Gadarea, which is, uh, pagan territory. Uh-huh. And this demoniac comes running to him from a cemetery and he, he has this whole exorcism with the demoniac. Let, Matthew, let's, let's back that up real quick. Demoniac as in demon possessed. As in demon possessed, right. right. Um, Matthew says, this is Matthew 8, 28 to 34. There were two. Yeah. There were two demoniacs. <laughs> the very next chapter, the rest of the Gospels, I think it's only Mark, says, and Jesus walked by a blind man. He saw a blind man and he healed the blind man. Matthew says there were two blind men. This is Matthew nine twenty seven to 31. Matthew 20, coming now really close to his triumphal entry. A triumphal entry happens in Matthew 21. Well, uh, Jesus is walking out of Jericho, and in Mark and Luke, there uh, there is a blind man who says, Son of David, have mercy on me, and uh, Jesus stops, talks to him, and heals him. Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34, says there were two blind men there, not one, two. And then you have the donkey and the colt in 21, 1 to 9. Okay. It looks like on four different occasions, Matthew doubles the number of things that happened. I don't present that as a discrepancy uh, because 
if there were two, there was at least one. And the other gospel writers just mention the one that Jesus interacted with mostly. Right. But there were two there, so it's not really a discrepancy. But it's interesting. It almost feels like I would be really curious to study why he's doing that because it honestly feels like an intentional thing to prove a point. Yeah, and I'm not sure what that point is. I haven't studied that enough, but... I've studied it, and I haven't found an answer, so... (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah. Fair. So, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, like, that does get interesting when there's multiple, but it only focuses on one. Um, I, I will say this. If you watch The Chosen, where Matthew is... He, he, it's it's like he suffers from Asperger's. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is just super tied to exactness. Mm. I'm not saying that the Chosen's got it right there, but if it does, it makes sense that, that well, Matthew would say, oh, no, 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 guys, there were two. I saw him. There were two. Yeah, you're talking about the one, but there were two two there guys right like i mean he's a tax collector so he's very numbers based he's very numbers oriented whereas you might have the others recounting the gist of what happened matthew is saying no actually here is the literal number that showed up that's a very very real possibility and we will expand on that um because you may be listening to this and going well wait was it one or two that matters um we'll address that when we get into maybe our kind grand conclusion, conclusion here yeah, yeah. of of biblical discrepancies but uh we'll talk about some some more stuff first i have i have one other here zach do you have anything else i have one after that yeah okay do you want me to want me on? to do this one or do you want to do yours yeah so i was going to talk about judas um oh yeah it kind of ties in with the the was it god or was it satan thing um but Judas, basically what happens – let me find here. I had it pulled up all nice and neat. Um, okay. Matthew 27, 5 through 7 says uh, – talking about Judas. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary. Now, these were the pieces of silver that the priest gave Judas for betraying Jesus. Correct. Uh, he threw them into the sanctuary and he departed. And he went away and he hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Okay. Then we go on to Acts 1. And and keep reading there. It says. Uh, I lost it. um, uh, It says that they called it then a field of blood. Yes. Go on. Yeah, verse 8. That's why it's being called the field of blood to this day. Okay. Um, Acts 1, 16 through 18 says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all, uh, in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. 
Um, so in the first, and then everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. They called that field their language, the, the field, field of blood. blood. Right. So you've got one account saying, well, there, there's really a couple contradictions, supposed contradictions here. One, did he die by hanging? Right. Or did he die because he was disemboweled? Right. Th- from a hanging. Right. right? Um, or falling headlong, it says. Uh, I think the answer there is very simple. He hung himself, and after some he time, bloated. he bloated in the sun. You're in the desert. Right. Um, and he was disemboweled upon. When they discovered him and cut him down. He burst. Yeah. Which is pretty gross. Popped like a balloon. So sorry, everybody. <laughs> but this is the Bible. Um the other supposed contradiction happening here is who bought the field? Was it the priests or was it Judas? And I think the answer here is a very simple one. Judas gave back the money. He threw the money in the temple. Right. So he throws it down. They don't receive it back as like a donation to the temple. They're saying this is blood money. This is blood money. So they take it and they buy the field with it. So... In a similar way of did Satan talk to David or did God talk to David and say, go have this census taken? Judas gave the money that the priests then turned around and bought the field with. So in a way, that's Judas's money paying for that field. This is the money. It's the same reason they won't take it back into the church because this is now blood money. That money was designated as the money that betrayed Christ. I I know we're in conjecture here. So do you think what happened is uh, they took the money and they bought the field with it? When Judas heard about that, he went to the field and hung himself? Because that means it was probably four or five days later. They couldn't buy the field on the Sabbath, which was the next day. It's very possible. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. So that, that Judas he goes and hangs himself in the field. Isolated himself from the disciples. Uh, he basically hid himself from them. And when he figures out, okay, they bought this field, he goes to that field right. that his money had been used to buy and hangs himself. Like you said, we're definitely in conjecture mode here. But like to me, that makes sense as to why he would end up in that field. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Because yeah. now he sees yeah. the fruit of what he is. Right. Done, right? Like, this is, he did this. Right. This field was purchased because of what he did. And Judas was not there to experience Jesus' resurrection. That's the other thing. Mm. He's thinking with everybody else in, in Jerusalem that Jesus is dead. He doesn't know that he's been raised from the dead because Jesus reveals himself to very few people. Right. Yeah. So with that said, I think, I think that's a pretty easy one to see where it works. Like this, like a lot of these, these aren't rocket science. It's really more often than not. What I have found when you have two, two different accounts saying something different, just put them together and see how they work together. Because yeah, most of, of the time they, they do. do. That's so In often fact, the answer. a lot of times they explain things that right. you may have had questions about from that, just the other viewpoint. That's literally – I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a uh, 
crime scene investigator. Oh, yeah, He's a yeah, detective yeah. Yeah. that became a Christian, and he did it in a very, like, Lee Strobel sort of fashion where he just started applying, like, a crime scene approach. He just started taking the gospel accounts and putting them against each other and treating them like eyewitness accounts in yeah. a crime. Yeah. And he's like, it works. Yeah. It does exactly what I would want it to do if I was trying to solve a crime over here. Like, it, it's not... They're not discrepancies. They are different viewpoints. And they work together. Of one single episode. Exactly. Yeah. So. I got another one. Let's hear it. It's, uh, G. Iris's daughter. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the major episode, and this occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is Jesus is in a crowd teaching. A leader of the synagogue comes to him and, and says, come to my house. My daughter is, is dying. She's very ill. They start, and that's when the woman with the issue of blood, some sort of internal hemorrhaging, uh, sneaks up behind him and touches him on the garment, the prayer shawl probably. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And he has an exchange with her. Then he goes back to Jairus, the, the uh, synagogue official, and they continue towards his house. And before they get there, his servants come out and say, your daughter's already dead. Don't bother the master anymore. Well, in Mark and Luke, it says uh, this. Let me read Mark's account. It's a little bit more complete. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so that she can live. Well, Luke says basically the same thing. Luke adds that the girl was about 12 years old. But Matthew, we're in Matthew 9, 18, says this. As Jesus was saying this, as he was teaching, the leader of a synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. So what is it? Is she dead or is she dying? Now, could be a discrepancy. Um, looking at that, it appears to me that it's, it's a matter of timing. He, uh, the girl's father comes to Jesus, says to him, my little daughter is really bad. She is at death's door. Please come and heal her. They start. The servants come out to meet him and said, it's too late. She's already died. Personally, I think it's at that point that the father looks at Jesus and says, she just died. Come anyway. Even now, I have faith that you can bring her back to life. And so they complete the journey. It's a matter of timing. Did they talk before or after the girl had died? And I, I think, too, if I recall, isn't uh, the one where – I may be getting this mixed up. Isn't one of those accounts in like nine verses and then the other is done in like 20-something verses? Uh, oh, Luke's very long. Yeah, yeah. Luke is uh, 16 And the other's verses. Matthew, right? Yeah. Mark is 21 verses, and Matthew's account is eight verses. 
so it's he super condensed. It yeah. Right. Like, it. and so you have to take that into account. Like he's doing this in much less words than the other account. So there are probably less details taking place there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So with all that said, yeah, there are times where you're going to run into, um, what like like Randy brought up already, like how Matthew talks about, oh, there were two guys there, yeah. whereas maybe Luke says, oh, there's one, or Mark says there's one, or whatever. Um, that happens places in the Bible, and people will count those as discrepancies. People will count those right. as contradictions, right. and I totally get why you would. Like we have these Western inquisitive minds, and we're looking for like a legitimate historical like documentation of right, things. Right, right, right. When that is not the point of the Bible. Yes. The Bible is trying to show you the heart of God and the greater truth behind something, right? So really I guess what what we're trying to get to right here in this portion of the talk is what is inerrancy? What is that actually? Yeah. What do we mean when we say that? Um if you talk about the Bible as being inerrant, as in it is without error, it cannot be in error. If what you mean by that is there's never going to be any differences between accounts given, there's never going to be any differences between, you know, this guy said there were 100,000 people and this guy said there were 200,000 people there. We we have stuff like that in the Bible. Right. That happens. The point isn't to give you a direct number of what was there. The point is there were so many people exactly, there. Exactly. And when you start reading the Bible for like the points it's trying to make, the greater truth that it's trying to teach you versus looking for like a um a scientific document, you get what it's trying to give you. Yeah. Um it's the reason God speaks about the creation of the earth in figurative language. It's the reason Jonah is likely uh, satire. You know, a lot of people think that the book of Jonah is a satire. Does that mean it's not true? No, that doesn't mean it's not true. It means it's written as satire to convey right. a right. certain right. thing to you in in reading it that you're supposed to see. Oh, well, wait, Jonah is supposed to be the good guy, but he's the bad guy, and all the people that are the bad guys are supposed to be the good guys, right? And like, it's all confusing. That's there for a reason. So learning how to read the Bible is a really important thing when trying to determine, wait, is this an error? Well, no. Right, it's right. what is the Bible trying to do here? That's the question. I I dislike the term inerrancy, and I dislike it because it's not a biblical term. Right. It's a Greek term that's used to describe something. But when you do that uh, – Different people can put a different meaning to that word that isn't necessarily implied in Scripture. I like scriptural terms. The Bible is true. It talks about it's true. The Bible is a faithful witness to what took place. It is true. Uh, I have no trouble with that. Now, if that's what you mean when you say inerrant, great. Right. Then yes, the Bible is inerrant. But if when you say inerrant, you're meaning that it is scientifically accurate, well, 
given that the Bible is not intended to convey scientific teaching, uh, it's intended to convey, convey matters of the heart, matters of right. spiritual transformation. Right. Then uh, I wouldn't use inerrant to describe that. Can we use the example you gave? So one account says there's one man who's demon-possessed, and Jesus pulls the demon out of him and casts it into a bunch of pigs, and they right. run off a cliff and die. Right. The other says there's two there's men two. that are demon-possessed, and Jesus pulls the demon out of him into a bunch of pigs, and they run off a cliff and die. Right, right. Okay. Do you get the point? <laughs> like, is it is it about how many this happened to? Because guess what? Over Jesus' ministry, look, when we read... The end of which gospel is it that says, and he did so much more uh, than these? The book of John. The book of John, but we couldn't record everything that the he skies did. wouldn't be able to record everything. Right. And so it's like the the point is look what he did. Look at all these miracles he performed. It's about God working through Jesus Christ, because right. Jesus is God, and it's showing how right. we right. can be right. used right. by right. the Holy Spirit. I have uh kind of five principles that I use when I look at discrepancies like okay. this. First of all, don't apply 21st century standards mm. to a text from the first century. Mm. You know, we live in an age, I remember growing up, so this would have been in the 60s and 70s, ivory soap. The ad for ivory soap was that it was 99 and 44 one hundredths of a percent pure. They can't use that today. They would never use that today because people would accept, uh, ex, uh, people would obsess over the 0.56% <laughs> that's impure. What's that? Yeah, it could kill me. Hmm. Uh, even within my lifetime, we have changed. So, uh, over 2000 years, there's going to be a lot of change. When it comes to issues of exactness, were there 5,000 men, no more, no less, who were fed? Second principle, allow for round numbers. Right. Especially when they're big like that. Right. Uh, it's in the ballpark. There were a lot. Well, I was talking to you earlier about like uh, there was an account. I think it was on the life of like Alexander the Great and Josephus wrote on it and Pliny the Younger wrote on it. And when you look, one says it happened in like the fall and one says like yeah. the summer. Right. And it's like, well, which is it? Well, I don't know. Sometime between summer and fall. Yeah. We don't throw it out as historically inaccurate. Exactly. Just because they differ in their timing. They both said it happened. Yeah. They both can attest to it. They got their timing a little off. Allow for translation issues. And that we saw in the, uh, Jesus set on them. Oh, well, what does the they refer to? The, the donkey and the colt or the clothes that were sitting on the donkey? Uh, them is the clothes. So Jesus sat on the coats, right. the cloaks. Um, look at, what it is that the point that, that the passage of scripture is trying to focus on. There are times when it will focus on exactness, on what happened. I believe uh, the story of David and Goliath, for example. I believe that's history. 
Uh, there's a lot of detail there. Um, is it First Chronicles, or I think it's actually Second Samuel, where uh, it talks about David's men. It says that uh, one of David's mighty men named Elkanah killed Goliath. Oh, so was it David or was it Elkanah? I've read some commentators that say, well, if the king's soldier killed him, then it's as if the king did it. No, there's too much detail. <coughs> the detail tells about David going to the battle, carrying cheese for his three brothers who were in the army. Those are details that you don't just make up. Um, instead, I think the issue there, and I'm sorry I don't have the passages, is that the word Goliath actually means glutton. You think of a giant the size of Goliath, he's going to be known as a heavy eater. <laughs> Goliath is a, a title for the biggest guy around. David killed one Goliath, Elkanah, killed another big guy, also known as Goliath. Hmm. So, and the last principle, if I come against something, and there are a few examples of this, that I don't know how to explain, that does not cause me to distrust the Bible. It causes me to think, I don't have all the information yet. I haven't gone deep enough on this yet. The problem is not in Scripture, it's in me. Because Scripture is true. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. I think those are good... Uh good points to kind of uh, to consider every time we come to something we think might be a discrepancy. Uh, the other thing is too, Hey, look, if somebody ever throws these at you, don't just attempt to like wing it on the spot and just like assume, you know, how to like best this or whatever, like go, wow, I've never heard that before. I should go look into that. Um, that's not like taking the L that's just, being honest and saying, yeah. I don't have an answer for that, but I'll look into that. And remember that as you reach out to people, try to win them to the Lord. What's going to win them to the Lord is not the power of your arguments. It's your love. It's your care for them. Right, right. And if you really love them, you really care for them. Think about what they said and yeah. go, go get to the bottom of it. Because, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe it's like Randy said where it's like, oh, those numbers are different. But that's not really the main point of what's being said there. Yeah, yeah. What it's trying to convey is this. And then you can show them how to read scripture versus a 21st century document. Yeah. It's very different. So right on. Thank you guys for uh, hanging out with us for a bit. Make sure to check out our website, www.saltysaintspodcast.com. Make sure to get over to Life Audio and check out all of their cool podcasts on reading the Bible, raising your family, as Christians, just daily Christian living stuff and just fun talk shows as well. Um, check them out. And until next time, stay salty. Are you concerned about tensions in the Middle East? Do you wonder where we're currently at in the biblical timeline? Are we really in the last days? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carl Muller with the Inside the Epicenter podcast. 
Every week, my co-host, best-selling author Joel Rosenberg and I answer those questions and more. You'll hear inside knowledge of our meetings with leaders at the highest levels of government in the U.S., Israel, and the Middle East, equipping you to filter the news with biblically sound insights. Find Inside the Epicenter on your favorite podcast app or go to joshuafun.com to listen and subscribe.